This is where we talk about creating financial security by monetizing those things that we already know or, or do. On this week's episode, we are doing the recap. It's a celebration for the 50th episode, and I thought I was going to be able to get it done in four, but it looks like it's going to take five. There's just so much good stuff that people shared on the podcast that it was just hard to make the decision, and so it's taken me longer than I thought. But anyway, so here we go. Let's get things started. Roll it. Are you prepared for what happens when what happens happens? Life happens when you least expect it. Create financial security. Monetize what you already know. Welcome to Monetize Your Mindset. Monetize Your Mindset. Identify your ideal side hustle so that you have the resources to deal with whatever happens when what happens happens. It's time to monetize your mindset. Here's your host, Bart Merrill. All right, so we're covering today podcast 27 to 35. We started off with Stacy Gardner from Shoebox Bootkeeping, where she talks about the common mistakes that entrepreneurs and solopreneurs do. So have a listen to what Stacy has to say. She shared a lot of good information. While working for the school district, I had met um, someone who happened to be a CPA, and she approached me one day and said, I thought you had an accounting degree. She knew that I was working this side job. And I said, yeah, I do. And she said, well, don't take offense to this, but what the heck are you doing? You have a degree and you're working a side job in retail. What, what's going on here? And I said, well, I just, I needed some extra money. And she said, yeah, let me help you out with that. You know, come and have a meeting with me and we'll talk about this. So I went and had a meeting with her and she said, Hey, you know, put your degree to work. And um, she actually had a few clients that she was bookkeeping for, and she got me started. I left there that day with two clients um, and started doing bookkeeping for them. A year later, I had 10 more clients and kind of maintained that over the nine years. Really had always had the desire to run that full time, but it was just scary taking that leap with my upbringing of, you know, having that security and taking that leap meant that I probably wouldn't have that security any longer. I started talking with other business owners and trying to figure out, should I take the leap? How do I take the leap? And one of them just said, you know, I'm going to be really honest with you, Stacey. If you don't ever bet on yourself, nobody ever will. If you want to make this work, take the leap, bet on yourself. So I quit my job that day. I came home. I told my husband, hey, I quit my job (laughs) (laughs) and I'm going to do this bookkeeping full time. What do you see some of the mistakes that small businesses or solopreneurs make? Probably the first thing is really trying not to commingle those funds. I bookkeep for many businesses where they're making, you know, maybe 50, their, you know, gross sales are 50,000 a year and their gross sales are, you know, 3.2 million a year. Uh, the biggest thing is they get to the end of the year and they wonder where all the money went. Well, they tend to use their business account, either they're mingling personal and business funds for one, or they're using their business account as an ATM. You know, there's 20 trips to Taco Bell on there and um, they're getting their hair done, their nails done, massages, things like that that really have nothing to do with the business. They're not able to really, you know, know what money that they're making. And then honestly, Bart, your book, your book has opened um, so many different areas of paths of trying to find different ways to find that side hustle and to essentially monetize your mindset. Um, An example, I actually bought the book for my son 
And he was about halfway through it and he calls me and he's like, mom, I already have, I already have a great idea. I'm like, really? What, what's your great idea for your side hustle? And he said, well, he's like, where I travel a lot. He's like, we normally take about an hour and a half lunch. And he says, you know, he's a, he's 20 years old. He eats his food in, you know, 0.2 <laughs> seconds. Uh, he signed up for DoorDash and he delivers that on his lunch hour. He looks and to see where they're, um, going to, what area they're going to be in for the day and where they're going to go for lunch. And he's, you know, looks to see if there's any orders. So then he goes and delivers a couple orders on his lunch hour and can make anywhere from 30 to a hundred bucks on his lunch hour, depending on tips and what he's delivering and those types right. of things. If you really start to really think about everything that you're doing in the day and figure out, is there a way that I can make make money at that? Is there a way, what else am I interested in? I would say really sit down and kind of take a, a good look and make that list of, of what things you're good at, what things you want to do. And the possibilities are, are endless with what you could do. All right. Up next, we have Ty Bennett. Ty Bennett is an amazing speaker. And we talked about how he's sharing his entrepreneurial spirit with his kids and also some of the things that he had to overcome as a young kid in the entrepreneur, entrepreneurial world. So take a listen to Ty. One of the things just from a mindset perspective, learning how to ride that emotional roller coaster as an entrepreneur and even now, as an example, you know, with what I do now, I speak about a hundred times a year. I will get my agent will yesterday was texting me about four or five opportunities. One coming up that looks like it will book as a speech and will be in Spain in southern Spain. I'm excited about that. Would be cool to go. And I lived in Portugal, so it's easy to go visit. Port like fun experience, right? Right. But it hasn't booked yet. And so even in talking about that, like you can hatch your <laughs> eggs, you know, you can, why, what is that saying? I totally said that wrong. Don't count your chickens yeah, before they hatch. There you go. But that creates this emotional roller coaster, right? Where at times you feel like you're on top of the world and everything is working. And literally seconds later, you can feel like nothing in the world is working. And, and in our first business, I, I remember just learning how to try and figure that out for me. When you were going to talk to people and people weren't responding in the direct sales industry yeah. and, you, and how you had to point out the obvious to actually make things work for you. How did that? Tell me about that. This was around 21 or so. Uh, I was having a lot of conversations with people and they seemed to like me, but they wouldn't do business with me. And so <laughs> I honestly, I couldn't figure out what was wrong. So I reached out to a mentor, a friend who was a successful entrepreneur. He was in his late forties or so. And took him to lunch and I explained the situation and I asked him for advice. I was like, I will do whatever you want. Just what should I do? Cause what I'm doing is not working. And he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the last five people who told you no. And I want you to ask them why. And I was like, I will do anything but that. <laughs> like I, I, this was uh, such a weird idea, such a scary proposition but he kind of coached me through it. So I did. I went back to these five people and just asked them for help. I just said, look, I'm not trying to convince you of anything. I, I would love your feedback. Honest, hurtful. I don't care. But I just want to learn, like, what am I doing wrong? Why did you say no? And all five of them said a couple of things, but all five of them at one point said, Ty, it's your age. I mean, at the time I was 21, I probably looked like I was 12. And I, I just didn't have a lot of experience but as dumb as this sounds, I had never thought about that before. 
I was just young enough and just cocky enough. I thought I was amazing. I didn't understand that other people didn't see me that way. And, and so I went back to this mentor and I said, it's my age. And he goes, I know. I was like, really? Like that was, we had to go do that. And, and he goes, yeah, you needed to hear it. And I said, okay. I said, but what am I supposed to do with it? Right. I'm not going to wait till I'm 40 to start it. Like what right. am I supposed to do? And he goes, I don't know. And he said, he said, what do the other, other young entrepreneurs do? What did Bill Gates do? What did Steve Jobs do? And as soon as he said Bill Gates, I had this idea that, that turned into a story. This for me was like the main story that made me realize how powerful stories were. Because I would sit down with people, and I, I've told the story thousands of times, but I would sit down with people like you, Bart, who were, they were older than me, they were more successful than me, they had more experience than me. And the first thing out of my mouth, I'd say, Bart, I kind of feel like a young Bill Gates. And you're looking at me nodding, but sometimes they would laugh out loud. Sometimes they would be like, what? Like, I wanted to engage them with that. And I'd say, here's what I mean. If you remember, Bill Gates was 19 when he dropped out of school, right? And at the time, computers were huge. They were the size of refrigerators. They were super expensive. And Bill Gates went around and told everybody he was going to put a personal computer in every home in the world. People probably thought he was nuts, right? Like, who's this young, naive entrepreneur? No idea what he's talking about, right? Well, here's the thing, Bart. I'm not saying I'm going to be as rich as Bill Gates is. And I'm not saying I'm going to change the world the same way Bill Gates has. But I do know that I have something here. And I'm just asking you to take a serious look. Is that fair? Right? And that story, <clears throat> more often than not, lended some credibility to me where they would say, yeah, all right, I'll take a look. Let's talk about it. Right? What are you doing? You're sharing your entrepreneur mind with your kids. What have you done there? How's that going? So I have four kids. Um, they're currently 13, 11, 9, and 6. They've always, and maybe it's just because they've grown up around me and I talk about it all the time, but they they seem to respond to entrepreneurial ideas, to making money, to uh, conversation around it. Um, one thing we do, we've, we watch Shark Tank, which I think is just a, such a simple and easy thing to do. But we watch Shark Tank like it's a business lesson, right? Where mm -hmm. we'll pause it and I'll say, do you know what that means? Right? They just said customer acquisition costs. Do you know what that means? Right, And we'll talk about it. Like Literally this morning, uh, as my kids were getting ready, my six-year-old daughter came out, Lizzie, with a coupon for a free drink at Swig that she got at school. Uh, she gave that, and Tanner, who's 11, he said, oh, I got one of those too. Everybody in the school got one. And I just, this is just how my mind works. I said, Tanner, why would Swig give everyone a free drink at your school? And he goes, well, I said, what do they get out of it? And he said, I don't know, I guess more customers. And I said, why would they get more customers? They're giving away a free drink. And he said, well, I don't know. Maybe if you go, like you buy a cookie too. And I said, yeah, if a kid gets a free drink, what do you think mom's going to get? Uh, I said, what do you think a drink actually costs Swig to make? And he's like, I don't know. I said, probably 11 cents, right? I mean, yeah. so this is, uh, and we literally had this conversation around what it means to use a loss leader. Like all, like this, I think those examples are all over the place, right? right? And we're always talking about that to where when my kids go to restaurants, sometimes they're like, dad, is this a franchise or is this fast casual? <laughs> just, <laughs> just cause those conversations come up, right? The other thing that's kind of come about is my boys have gotten really into American Ninja Warrior. Um, they do competitions and love it. And for their 
I don't know, just because I'm a weird dad. But uh, for them to jump into it, we built a ninja course in the backyard. Then for Christmas, we built a ninja course through our basement. Uh, <laughs> but then we start talking about it and like, you guys could do classes. I mean, they're legitimately good. Like right. my son competed in the world finals. Like they're, they're both very good at it. And I post a bunch of videos. And so it becomes like a lot of people, literally they'll, they've knocked on doors in our neighborhood uh, of people they don't know. And they're like, aren't you those ninja kids? You know, because <laughs> people have seen videos I posted right. or whatever. So they started teaching some ninja classes and uh, you know, I'm not charging a ton, but you know, it, we have a cool course to play on and people can come to do it. And for a few bucks for an hour, they'll show them how to do things and go through and teach the class. And same thing, like I'm walking through and role playing out what they're going to say and, talking through it and how do you teach this and how do you support them here and you know what's the flow of the class look like and let's break it down into 10 minute increments and you know make sure that you're filling the time and all of that and uh it's that's how my mind works is always looking at something like that it's like if we're going to build a ninja course in the backyard you guys can use that all the time but what else could you do with it i mean you've got a built-in business here that is cool it's fun you love it and it's very easily accessible so why not Right. Uh, and so, you know, we've had those conversations of like, boys, if you're serious about this, this could pay for college. Like this right. could be a, you know, 10 classes a week kind of thing very easily. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I more than anything, it's just having those conversations, talking through some of those things, getting their minds to think that way, because regardless of what my kids end up doing, uh, I truly believe that to be effective and relevant in today's world, you need to learn how to think like an entrepreneur. Up next, we have Tyler McCullough. He's a videographer, and he had to take that step off on his own when he got laid off from his employer. And we talk about how he did it and the, the thought process that he went through, and he shared a lot of good information. Have a listen to Tyler. How, how was the actual moving from, okay, I have a job to now I'm on my own. I need to get clients. I need to get people. You had Jason. Did you have anybody else at the time? At the time, I didn't have anybody else. I mean, I had a few other clients that I had worked with, but they were all kind of one-off things. Right. And so one of the biggest and scariest things for me was how am I going to go from having this guaranteed paycheck as well as insurance and, and you know, a 401k program to if I don't get enough work, I don't eat, right? Like that's the end, that, that's it. So how do I go from that? So Jason uh, was amazing and he kind of said, well, I'll sign up to dedicate a certain number of hours with you every month for a certain um, amount of money. And then he also said, well, I'll also bring on this good speaker buddy of mine named Ty Bennett and he'll do the same thing. So I, and I'd worked with Jason plenty of times, but never on a monthly consistent basis. And I had never worked with Ty. Uh, I don't know that I'd even met him at that point before. And so suddenly I had two, let's face it, Hall of Fame quality speakers. Ty hasn't made it quite yet, but any day now I expect he gets the call, uh, <laughs> which was, I was incredibly lucky that I had these two speakers every month locked in and they said, we'll commit to that for six months and then we'll kind of go from there. And so that was incredible. And that was all the kind of the, reassurance I needed to make that step, but it was still very nerve wracking. Full time, full time for three years. How's it been? Oh, it's been phenomenal. I, I often, I mean, that was the biggest question I got in my first year of business was like, all right, like you did this thing. How's it been going? 
And I would kind of just chuckle and laugh. And I mean, a lot of it was my former employee friends who still worked at the fitness company because they also wanted to quit because they didn't want to be there. And they were like, so, you know, please tell me that you're, you know, what I was going. <laughs> and I would kind of laugh and say, I'm making two to three times as much as I was making in the fitness company. And they just, uh, their looks shocked, right? They'd be shocked. So it's been great. I, I really am. I'm making more money than I was making before. And what I love, though, is that I'm meeting more people. I'm networking with more people. I'm seeing more things, more places. I'm going more places. Uh, and, and most of all is that I control my life. I control my finances. I control my schedule. I mean, if somebody contacts me and says, hey, are you available on, you know, your wedding anniversary? I say, no, I'm unavailable. Thanks for asking. But like, here are the other days I'm available. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And that's on me. I have that ability, right? right. Whereas if I'm out of PTO days or whatever, you know, at a, at a full-time corporate business, that's sorry, you don't, you can't take that day off or whatever. And at the same time is if I really want to crank up my earnings and and make a little bit more money then I can take every single gig that comes my way and, you know, work 20 hours a day, which sometimes that's happened if if it comes down to that point. And so I love having that control of saying, you know, I, I can make as much as I'm able to make and it's all on me. It's not, I'm not relying on a company or somebody else. Uh, you know, if my boss decides to take a heyday or go crazy, I don't lose a significant amount of my pay or anything like that. It, that's what I love the most of, of, I mean, forget that I'm making more money, forget everything else, but I have the freedom of my own schedule my own time, my own life. For someone who may want to do what you do, what would you suggest that they watch out for or that they, that they look for? Either watch out or look for or both. Sure. I mean, any advice I would give to an aspiring entrepreneur of any kind, because I think it takes a certain type of person. Not everyone is set out. Some people just can't handle it. As we talked about it all being on you. Right. And and, uh, they love maybe in my case, they love the video aspect, but they hate the business aspect. They hate having to network and meet clients and, and make business cards. I'm lucky that I love that part almost more so than the video part. Sometimes I, I love it. And so, but if somebody was the right type of person, understood all that and was really looking to kind of follow my similar path or, or go that way, what I, the advice I always give is start immediately and just do it on the side. Because that's how I started. I was at the fitness company and had my full-time eight to five job and was still doing my own business on the side. And then when the time came, I was able to ramp it up and accelerate the the production and, and, and keep going and turn it into a viable full-time you know, production company. Um, so that's the advice I give. And because and, there's two ways to do it. Mine was kind of jump off the into the deep end and say, let's see what happens and go from it here. Another way is that you could just keep slowly ramping up your side business until your side business gets so big that it overshadows and takes over and says it forces you out. Whereas right. I was I was forced out by a different thing and then jumped into my side business, which has now become my full time not a, it's not my side business. It is is my business. Uh, whereas some people, their side business forces out their job. And that all is, is very similar to what, uh, Gary V will preach and, and many people will preach, but that's, I think that would be the advice I would give to anybody looking to do this is ramp it up from there. Awesome. Good advice. Great advice. Because like you said, you didn't have a family yet. Mm -hmm. That's important. Yeah, absolutely. It's important to figure out where you are versus a mutual friend of ours that, uh, Jesse Good yep. has a big family. He has to continue his day thing while he's doing his pursuing his his 
side hustle. And the pressure, I can't imagine. It's it's immense. How many? It's five, six children Jesse has? Eight. Eight? Eight? <laughs> Jesse, oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, like I said, like it was it was pressure for me with zero children and a wife who was working. So I can't imagine the kind of, you know, stress and pressure that that would put on someone with eight, five, five six, seven, eight, uh, <laughs> two, you know, any amount of children, family to take care of, especially if there wasn't another income in the home. So yeah, it takes a special type of person, special type of situation, but, uh, but it's important to analyze where you, of course. All right. On this episode, it's with Chris Cotero, a high school buddy of mine who is in a rock band, a heavy metal rock band. He plays bass guitar in high school. I didn't even know him as a bass guitar player. He was a basketball player. All of a sudden he's in rock bands and playing with people like Slash from Guns N' Roses, uh, Marty Friedman from Megadeth. He, and so he's really in that world and he shared a lot of things about business. And so we had a great talk with Chris Cotero. Have a listen. The journey into the music business really, uh, really started for me. I got a, ended up getting a degree in journalism and mass communications. I got a job at the Pan American Center um, working for Barbara Hubbard, who was in a very, very big promoter across the country. I was really fortunate that Barbara had a program that she liked to bring in kid, college kids to actually work in real world arena music business type of environment really helped kickstart a lot of people that I know. And at the same time, I was kind of honing my own musical jobs, playing in various cover bands and, and whatnot. And the Pan Am Center is a big event center there in Las Cruces, New Mexico by New Mexico State University. And yep. that's where I got, so 12 years old, I went and saw Barbara Mandrell. <laughs> yeah. And Barbara Mandrell, after her concerts, would sign autographs for everybody. I stood in line, and I got up to where she was, and she was sitting on the stage, and I asked her for a kiss. Did she oblige? She, she hopped off the stage and gave me a kiss. <laughs> I was in love. That whole summer, I was on... I don't know where I was, but man, I was listening to nothing but Barbara Mandrell. Mandrell. <laughs> Late 95, which was also an interesting time for me because I'd come to work in 95 here in Phoenix to, I worked with the Super Bowl, the host committees. I was doing marketing and event planning because I'd done that at, at the Pan Am Center. I ended up having to make a decision. All those guys who were doing all that stuff with the, with the, with the Super Bowl ended up going on to you know, your six figure a year jobs. Right. And for me, I kind of realized I wasn't going to be able to do both music and that. Honestly, it wasn't even a hard decision. I, I chose music. I've never been overly driven by money. And obviously, we always need money. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> right. the world. Um, <laughs> but I wasn't going to, especially at that point in time, I wasn't going to let it kind of be the deciding factor of my life. And, and if you, when you think back and you have a little age underneath you, your 20s are a lot of trying to figure out some of who you are. The world seems black and white. Big decisions that are made that you're not really ready to make <laughs> in right. your 20s sometimes. That was one of them that was a turning point for me because I went wholeheartedly into music. And from that point, we did a couple different records through the late 90s for Metal Blade. I got to tour you know, over the world. I wasn't becoming rich by it by any means, but I was living life. I had been working for America West Airlines, which was 
And this is part of the grand scheme of, of doing what you got to do to try to make, to, to monetize what you do. Um, at that point, this was pre 9-11. I took the job because I had flight benefits. I could fly anywhere in the world for free. And it was very flexible. They were more than happy to let me take weeks off at a time, if need be, to go tour or do something. I actually worked that job for several years because it just, it opened up a lot of opportunities. And the other guys in the band did the same thing. A couple of them, one other one worked at the America West and the other, the other guys' um, girlfriend's wives ended up uh, working there. And so we all had flight benefits and can travel wherever we want. You know, and he, he's telling me, Jimmy DeGrasso, who was the drummer in Megadeth and Suicidal Tendencies, and why he's going to be playing drums, and this other guy, Ron Jarzombek, is going to be playing guitar, who is also a, a famous underground guitar player. And I'm thinking, man, am I biting off more than I can chew? And Feeling, and, a, feeling a little bit inadequate. I totally was, but it's, you know what? Everybody in the music business, there's one of the things I had, I had been taught. You just say yes. And then you figure it out and you hope you hope you can make it work. And it's a lot of what it is because, you know, especially in the music, music business opportunity, you know, things come along. It's when opportunity meets preparation. Right. Right. And I said, yes. And I worked my ass off for three months. And thank God Marty gave me a really long head start on, on the stuff, working a day job, playing in my original band. And then from like, you know, 11 o'clock at night till two in the morning doing nothing but learning all this crazy complicated guitar music of Marty's. Um, we ended up doing the tour and I ended up staying in the band with it. Everything went great. I ended up doing much better than I thought. And it kind of elevated me as a player. I went, Oh wow. Okay. I can do this. this I, I do belong on that stage. Was I realized, and I knew this kind of coming in when you, when you have a day gig and you have a cushy day gig, you can, you can make a decent living without the music's money, it makes it really easy. When, when you're going to grind and you just got to do it, this is your sole thing, you, you learn how to have to find different avenues and channels to monetize yourself. Right. Um, fluidity, you know, you have to have various income streams. And with that, you know, I, I had meandered, put my toe into doing product videos um, and video, and I just jumped more wholeheartedly into that. You know, in, in the music business, it's a lot like acting or something of that. You know, you, you always hear about famous actors being waiters and waitresses for X amount of years until they weren't, until they didn't need that job anymore. And at that point, I needed that job to make my ends meet. But at the same time, I picked a job that was going to work in conjunction with what I was trying to do. Right. And I think that's an important thing when anybody who's and this can apply to any business or anything somebody's trying to do is that you just don't jump into something, become the best at it or have all these massive opportunities thrown at you when you've been in it for 15 minutes. Right. Right. It takes a minute. It takes a minute. And part of that is, is you have to actually think out your process, think about what you're doing and say, okay, you know, if I'm going to do this and I know I need to make some money to, 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 to cover my butt in the, in the, in the meantime, then what can I do that aids this? And right. sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's nothing but money, right? You just you're doing a job just to keep a roof over your head. But if it, you know, and that and that for what I always try to do is I always try to do something, figure something out that allowed me to help build what I wanted to do. 
And I think if you, if you go into whatever it is you want to do, if you go into it with a, a, a more of a focused mindset of how to do it, you can circumvent some of the pitfalls. You know what? This whole song and dance of got to do whatever it takes, come hell or high water, here we go. Man, there's, you, you can't do that. You have to be focused. You have to, you have to understand what, it, what is really going into it and is the juice worth the squeeze? And that's something I say a lot because it's, it's very true in the music business. But what you're going to do, you know, there comes a point in time when you've traveled enough and you've done enough things that, okay, I've seen a lot of things in the world. Now I've got I've to make money at this. And if, I, if I'm not making money at this, I've got to figure something else out. That's part of the mindset you have to have. I literally paid for all my experience. But it, this, this is a mindset thing that you picked up and people don't think like you think. You know, people, well, they should. They I should, mean, exactly. They, they, they should because, I mean, life is what you, what you make out of it. I, I'm a firm believer of that. And you, you have to just stay diligent in what you want to do. And sometimes it means sucking it up and, and having to do things, you know, maybe you don't want to do for a little while to, to make the ends meet. But, you know, if you stick with it, I think, and you have something viable. And that's the other part of this. I, I, I'm a big admirer of people who, who figure out they have something viable that they do or can make or do, you know, whatever that, that comes out to be. I also think there's a whole set of people who are just 100% better off going to work and punching a clock. And God bless them. You have to figure out what you're good at. And if you have something, though, that you're good at or can do, you want to go beyond that, then, you know, this is kind of the mindset you have to have. I will say the biggest thing, though, if you're talking about musicians, young musicians, authenticity. Authenticity is the bedrock foundation of what you better be doing. Because if you're not authentic at what you're doing, people figure it out. There's too many, too many artists out there today. And there's a lot of them that you listen to their stuff. And even on a subliminal level, you're the layman. You have no idea anything about music but certain things you gravitate towards. You don't know why. It's the authenticity of what's being presented to you. All right, up next we have Michelle Villalobos from Florida. And we talk about the front end, the back end, and all the things in between when it comes to business, at least in her business. And so it was a great interview, great information. So have a listen to Michelle. Yeah, and from an emotional level, you know, you consider that you become so subject to the, the, you're at the mercy of circumstances all the time. Like, was this a good day or a bad day? Did I make a sale today or not? You know? And in 2014, when I had the breakdown and the subsequent wake up call, what I got was that I needed to create whatever I was going to create it. Whatever I was going to create had to have monthly recurring revenues eventually. Like all roads had to lead to something where people were number one, paying me monthly. And number two, I was providing value on an ongoing basis because that also felt way more fulfilling to me personally than the one-off gigs and engagements. The front end is everything that is, that is marketing. And I consider speaking now to be marketing. Uh, even when I'm not making an offer, which is 90% of the time, I'm not pitching anything from the stage but even when I'm speaking and I'm not offering anything, I'm still building up the opportunity for people to connect deeper with me 
and to eventually perhaps come into one of my foundational programs, which I actually only have one foundational program, which is my big, which is my back end. The back end are these three day retreats that I lead four times a year called the superstar business breakthrough. Basically it's a, it's a, it's a rinse repeat kind of retreat in the sense that it's very easy to deliver, but it's also very powerful and transformational because every time it's a different group of people in the room, it's a different experience because you are not learning stuff. We're doing stuff kind of like what you experienced um, in the retreat that we met at. And so I do that four times a year. Actually, Heather's one of my clients. So anyways, um, and so, uh, so I do that. That's the back end. And then the big back end is the one year mastery program where people can enroll if they want to keep the journey going. And that's where the stability comes in from a revenue perspective. And it's also where the big transformations come from a client perspective. Your system, what are some of the points that you, that you point out to people that they need to have? So the first thing is there's, there's, a, there's several things. In the front end, generally my favorite strategy for, for the marketing piece is speaking of some sort whether that means speaking in front of somebody else's audience's audience or speaking in front of your own. So what you need there is you need a core foundational message that gets people in the door, that delivers a, a big enough aha moment that people are like, wow, there's a new problem now that they hadn't before that they hadn't identified. You need that first keynote slash you know, workshop slash preview event content that basically gives the awakening, gives the like the light bulb goes off. It's like, oh, ding, ding, ding. So in my case, for example, one of my speaking engagements topics or one of my keynotes or workshops is monetize your magic, which is funny because yours is monetize your mindset. <laughs> monetize your magic is about how to find those gifts in you that you love to do that you would do anyways that you can monetize. And find the things inside your existing business that you're doing that you love and enjoy and that add the most value and then figure out ways to delegate, outsource, offload, delete the rest. So that's the, that's one of my lead in topics. And then of course the big, the next question is, well, what's the business model that you're going to use to monetize your magic? Like, are you going to do one-on-one coaching? Are you going to do events? Are you going to do speaking training are you going to do virtual programs? There's, you know, any number of business models out there, but not every business model is aligned for your magic and for your personality. So that's what the retreat, that's what our, my foundational program delivers, right? It's like, what, what is the next step? And so when, when I help people develop their own foundational program, the question is, what can you deliver in a compressed amount of time that can deliver people a really powerful result? And then, and that could be in the form of a six-week course, a three-day retreat. You know, there are any number of ways you can deliver that foundational program. But generally, I like to keep it between, you know, somewhere between like a three-day retreat and a one-month program. You know, it's funny because the biggest failure was seven and a half years into my business, realizing that I had built a really crappy job for myself that I hated, and that I was the I had left to be my own boss and I ended up being the worst boss I ever had. I never gave myself vacation or downtime. I was always working early, late, weekends, evenings. I would say that that was my biggest failure was spending seven and a half years of my life 
building something or working so hard at something that, and that ultimately was not anything aligned with who I was or what I really wanted to be doing in the world. Now that said, I have no regret because I really truly believe that that breakdown was what gave me the ability to do what I'm doing today. And I wouldn't have the experience or the story or the, you know, the, the desire to share what I share if I hadn't gone through it. So there's no regret there, but it was definitely a big, you know, breakdown. And it was also a big, um, you know, it was a blow to my ego. I had spent a lot of years really deriving significance from status. Who was looking at going down this path as a speaker or a trainer or a coach? What is your biggest, best advice to give them? I would say it may be pretty obvious, but it's, it's, it's often, you know, obvious, but I see so many people who don't do this. And that is to become a great speaker, to, to, to hone the craft, to learn to, like, to really get a great message and learn how to engage and enroll people in that message. I feel like that's the best marketing you can do for anything is to be a, an influential and compelling presenter, speaker. Yeah, presenter, speaker, leader. That's really the word is to practice and learn and hone the art of leadership through language and, and, and through your message. It's a Warren Buffett says that communication and speaking is the one skill that will increase your value by 50%, I believe is what he says. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised it's not 500%. <laughs> Up next, what about a massage? Who likes a massa- massage? I talked with Cheryl Wren from Burkana Body Works. She started out in her home. I remember taking my mom as I was taking care of my mom the last years of her life. We would take my mom to visit her in her home. Now she has two massage locations that she runs. Great information on how to scale your business and what she kind of did. How did you make that jump? What were some of the decisions from the home office to renting a room to doing your own location? What was some of your thought process there? Well, I began, I focused more on massage because my husband and I actually went through a very serious financial downfall and went through bankruptcy. Because of that, I felt like, well, during that time I was doing massage and and because it was so instrumental in, in us keeping our home, I decided that you know, I could do more with this. You know, I need, I felt like I needed to be more of a contributor to the, to the financial situation that we, we had to kind of get us back out of the, of the hole that we were in. And so that was part of why I felt like I wanted to do more with massage. Also, though, with the kids being gone, what was I going to do with my time? You right. Know? And so why not? Why not spend more time in massage? I found that I was very good at it. People really enjoyed the massages that they were getting. In fact, I have clients still coming to me this day that have been clients since I graduated from school. Wow. They have been coming on a regular basis now for nearly 18 years. It just made sense. It just made sense to pursue it a little bit more and just kind of see where it might take me. Right. What are one or two mistakes where you have learned the most? About, you know, just about business, about yourself, about, you know, what are a couple of mistakes where you actually learn something that 
was a mistake, maybe cost you money, but it actually propelled you forward. As you mentioned, you and I met each other through a network marketing uh, company many years ago. And I would say that network marketing, I've tried my hand at that at several companies and always been a miserable failure. And that has been a really good thing for me because what it it caused me to look more in depth than what I am good at. You know, some people are just brilliant in network marketing and I'm not one of them. <laughs> and, and that's okay. I didn't have to be because I am brilliant as a massage therapist. And in fact, I told my son one day, he's in school to become a physical therapist, struggling with some of the work, you know, just feeling not super confident. And I said to him, son, just remember, you are the son of a mother with a brilliant business brain. And I am brilliant, but not in network marketing. (laughs) And so that was a really good experience, ultimately, because it helped me to look at what I was good at and really focus on that. For someone who wants to step out, wants to do a side business, but is having a little bit of animosity, a little bit of worry, what helped you make the commitment to say, hey, I can do this. I'm going to go for it. I think you just have to take that first step. If you've done your research, if you've you know, write down things that you feel like you do well. You know, you've got to start with something, some kind of a roadmap to give you some direction. So if you don't have something already in your mind that you want to do, then I would just take time, meditate in the bathtub. I love that's my favorite spot. (laughs) Just but just take the time you need, quiet your your surroundings so that you can really ponder and just start writing down things that A, you like to do, B, things that you think you're good at. And then out of those two areas, what do you think other people would think you are good at? Right. Because you may think you're good at something and others don't. So you've got to kind of see what's out there and how you can fit into that. What do you know about the dark web? If you don't need anything to purchase off that dark web, why do you care? We sat down and talked with Michael Williams of Fortify It, Fortify IT, and and he talked about the dark web and IT solutions and cybersecurity, many things that we need to be concerned with, and he had a lot of great information that he shared. Take a listen to Michael. Security is our primary focus in everything we do. Okay. Um, that's a, becoming a bigger concern for companies for obvious reasons. I don't think there's many that haven't had some impact from either their accounts being hacked or worked or hit or something, some data loss in some way. Uh, We're hearing about all of these major companies being hacked. Right. And we hear that, but nobody knows how does that impact them, right? right? We hear about, you know, target issues and was it uh, the uh, Experian. Experian that had the major multiple times that we had yahoo which full database hit twice you know there's there's things like that happening but nobody knows how that really impacts them until it does right (laughs) and then then we really have to work with those so there's a lot of things you can put into place to prevent those from both an individual standpoint as well as from a company there's a lot of things you can implement to prevent those types of things a lot of the companies i'm working with they wouldn't even know if they were having an attempt made let alone if things were lost or whatever. So we can help with that. At least put the best practices in place to know that you're 
relatively safe. You can never protect your company 100%. You can't make yourself unhackable. Right. What you can do is make it so difficult that it's not worth their time. They can move on to easier prey. You can right. say it that way. Gotcha. So it's definitely the major, one of the major focuses of us is security. And that's why I start with security discussions with every first contact is just for that. Gotcha. That's kind of where you start. And then you can move into other ways of helping. You could say the bad guys, I'll just call them the bad guys. <laughs> um, if they were to get that list, they can use that data in a, a bunch of different ways. Let's say they do get a Yahoo list of emails and passwords. Most people don't use their password in just one place. They use it in multiple. So if you, even if they change their password as part of that, because Yahoo would send out a big thing saying, please change your password, implement whatever they think is necessary. And that's great. Mass changes are made. Everybody updates their passwords, but those passwords may have been sh- shared or used in their banking information or, or all these different sites. So the bad guys will take that information and try to hit a uh, you know, list of different sites where just trying to get into them as you a lot of that can be automated. They have systems that they just copy and paste that in. They hit send and it starts trying to hit all these sites. It's fairly automated for them. There's services they can buy that would just help them do that. Right. One word of advice. If you only use a username and password to get into anything anywhere, you need to implement something in addition to that. MFA or multi-factor authentication is a common method. It's just smart. It's what you should be doing now. Well, I just got an email within the past couple of days from Google that Gmail accounts are going to have another step in it. Yeah. Yep. That they're going to be sending a code to your cell right. phone. That's MFA. That's exactly what that is. So the idea is when you log into something, you log in with something you know, like your password, and then you also use something you have or something you are. That's like thumbprint, face recognition, that kind of thing. Right. So yeah, everyone, I think Microsoft Office 365 is enforcing that. Me as a provider, they're making me go to my clients and enforce that everywhere. Uh, G Suite's the same thing. Uh, Gmail, Hop, I mean, all of those email accounts, that's a, a common method for people to get in. So they are focused there first. It's actually surprising they took so long to enforce that, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> because it's been known for a while that that's a common vector of you know people getting in and getting information. Right. So it's a good idea to hit that first. Email, to give you another scenario, if they can get into your email... They can go do a forgot my password on your bank account, get a password and log in. Email is number one. You need to protect that first. Of what I see, most of the major easy hacks, you could say, come through email. That can be transfer money now, That can be, which we've heard of those before. Right. Um, that can be, you know, click this link to log in and it scrapes passwords and then tries to use them to, to get into an organization. Many things, but a lot of those come through email first. So that's always the easiest one to hit first before you move on to more complicated methods of protection. Yeah. Gotcha. You were pretty lucky to get somebody that just wanted to goof off. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> why would you do? I mean, I don't they get do it the for point. Fun. They there, do. There's kind of a few different actors out there, right? That actor is just like, I want to go have fun. I want to see what I can get away with. What can I do? Right. They don't really want to steal anything or get money out of anything. They just like, look what I can do. Right. Right. That's a teenage guy in his basement. That's what he's doing. Other guys would have hacked it, put something on your site and you wouldn't have known. They would have just been scraping data or looking for logins or some way of monetizing that. That's the scary part. Right. Some people don't know that that's been, that's happened. Right. And that's, that's kind of a scary thing, especially if you have logins, you're accepting some personal data, especially if there's sensitive information, social security numbers or credit card information, that kind of thing. Make sure you put some additional things in place. Yeah. It used to be that 
viruses or you know whatever's getting on your machine would be in your face right it would pop things up and it would drive you crazy and you're like i don't know how to get rid of this and then you'd call somebody right it doesn't work that way anymore or i should say very rarely will you get that we probably don't see those random pop-ups and crazy stuff happening as much as we used to what we do see or what i see more often than not is yeah something will be on your machine and it's key logging or it's doing some way of grabbing data or it might just be installing a botnet or a method of it'll put something on your machine and sit and do nothing until this is just one of the many things. There's a service that people can go out and buy to bring someone down. They go out and say, I want to bring company this down. They pay the money. All these machines that have all these little botnets all over the world all hit that at once and bring us down. So they, they're using that to buy, you know, have a cash flow for something that your machine never looked weird before. Right. And it doesn't impact the end user. It impacts the company that just, you know, that's just one of the hundreds of thousands of different hacks. But yeah, they use that for whatever purpose they want. Hmm. See, that's kind of a scary thing. Right. That's, you know, a lot of, Ru- when I started looking in, into some of this or some of the stuff I've come across, a lot of Russian companies, it's a common thing. That's what they do. And then you can go, we were talking dark web before we started here. You know, you can go on the dark web, find these guys and pay through Bitcoin or whatever. So they can't track into it. And it just, you can do hacks against people, get information from specific people. Now, come on, like, Michael. There's a whole lot of information. You're blaming the Russians again? I know. Isn't it weird that I say Russians? It's not just <laughs> Russians. It's just I happen to see multiple methods used, but that's where we traced it back to. What is the dark web? What's on it? And why do yeah. why do I care? It's called a few different things, dark web, dark net. There's other expressions for it. But imagine an internet where there's no way to Google anything. There's no way, no easy way to find things. Unless you know the URL, you don't know how to get to it. So it's a very easy way to go anonymous, right? People don't know how to get, get to your site. So if you wanted to sell things that you shouldn't be or illegal, for example, um, that's one way to do it. Lots They've shut down or found and shut down some companies on occasion that are billion-dollar companies selling illegal you know, drugs or whatever content. So it's big business, again. But the idea there is you use a special browser that connects out to this area that is not, you know, crawled by a Google or you know, that kind of things. Most, most of those links and things are shared by people that know it. And so the idea is that you can go out and get content. And the truth is I would not ex- recommend that you go out and look this up. Don't go start searching because there's a lot of garbage out there. You're going to find a lot of stuff that you didn't want to see. You didn't want to hear about. You didn't want to know what happened. So a lot of the stuff that's illegal is out there. So not having to, I mean, it's always risky to do, to break into doing your own thing. That's always a risk. I'm still in that risk period, I feel like, and it's been a long time, but making that transition was such a huge deal to me. Being able to do that, just saying, yes, I'm here, I'm doing it was such a big success to me and seeing how I was able to work, you know, that, that was a big deal to me. And I learned that relationships are your friend and that truly I couldn't have done this without some help from the companies that I was working for, as well as from, you know, kind of my sports system, my, my wife, you know, those people all have to buy in because there's some sacrifices to be made and some changes to make. I learned right off the bat that your relationships are kind of the key. Right. That was a big thing for me. So one of the things that is different from everybody for everybody is when they make that transition, what is their personal situation? Yeah. I've never had a real job, so I've never had to make that transition. Yeah. When I started doing what I do, I was single. I was young and single. Yeah. So the risk is, yeah, it's not. It's really me. There. I'm taking care of me. When you yeah. made the transition, what was your situation? So my situation, I was making what I think or consider to be pretty good money. Okay. 
my wife's question to me was, why are you doing this? You're already doing, you're successful. You're making money and we're doing well. What's, you know, why? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> That's and, a good question. I mean, too. why would you even bother? You're doing fine. And the truth is I was more excited about doing it for myself. And really, it, it felt more like helping people than working for someone. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I really wanted to help these customers that were calling. Yeah. Okay, so in closing here, for someone who wants to make that transition into something that they've wanted to do for a long time, mm-hmm. you said you it took two years to get your wife's okay. Mm-hmm. What is your best advice <laughs> to them? Well, it's going to be risky no matter what you do. If you're enjoying what you're doing and you really do have a vision there, you know I can't just blindly say go for it. But unless you start, you'll never get there. If you can start while you're doing what you do now, start. If it's only a little bit, do it. That's how I started. It's just doing a few things here and there. It was like a side job a month or maybe a little bit more than that when we started. It was just something fun. It was exciting. It was something to keep keep me alive, you know? Right. <laughs> keep, keep the mojo flowing. All right. Finally, and the last one in the queue for today is Jesse Be Good. Jesse's a good friend of mine. I met him in Toastmasters, and he is a customer science specialist customer science expert. One of those things, he knows a lot about customer service and he trains and teaches corporations on customer service. And we had to talk about how important customer service is when it comes to maintaining your current customers and how important it is. So have a listen and learn a little bit about customer science. Yeah, so uh, when I first started to recognize that training was an issue, uh, in my first couple years of college, I I worked at the video store, for those listeners who remember what the video store is. I I went to the video store, Uh, my cousin worked there, and he referred me, so it was was pretty much just a dead ringer, it should have been easy to get the job, right? And uh, I walked in, and I remember in the interview... The, ma- the manager who was interviewing me asked me something or said something like, we believe that customer service is very important here and we have to take care of our customers. What, what do you think about that? And I just said, yeah, that's right. I, I agree. Customer service is great. It's really important. And then he said something like, we believe that we would be nothing without our customers and that we have to keep them happy and, and have them coming back again and again and again. Do you agree with that? And I said, uh, Yes, I I definitely agree with that. And he gave me two or three more just these softballs all about how important customer service is and the customers are. And and I just said yes every time. And then he said, great, I think you're the person for the job. And uh, so I got hired and I began working. So knowing almost our entire interview was all about customer service, then when I'm presenting in front of audiences, I like to ask, so what then would have been the first thing that they trained me how to do? And people usually say, you know, customer service. And I say, actually, no, I first thing I learned was how to pull movies out of the Dropbox. <laughs> now, now, this isn't the, the like online Dropbox where you keep your files. Uh, this is, you know, you could drive up in your car. There's like a box just like at the library. You slip your stuff in. I have to specify this because I actually gave a presentation and I showed a, an image of a VHS tape and it said, be kind, rewind on it. There were people in the audience who did not know what it was. So I I have to be specific about what the Dropbox is. Anyway, so people would drop movies in the Dropbox, and that was the first thing I learned was how to pull movies out of the Dropbox. But the second thing I learned 
was also not customer service. It was actually just then how to check in the movies. I learned how to reshelve the movies. I learned about checking movies out to customers. I learned how to close out the drawers, how to open the store in the morning. I had all of these things I could open and close the store by myself, but had never received any kind of customer service specific training during that time. And so I I think that's one of the big things is, and I mean, it doesn't even have to be huge or extensive. Like I said, I I use discover, deliver, do more, which means with a new employee, I can train them in 30 seconds if I need to. I like to go more in depth into that when I can. But if I just, you know, hey, you're brand new. Things are busy. Here's what you do. I, in three easy steps, I can lay that down. What happens then is people who don't receive that training tend to say, oh, well, I'm, I'm really good with people and, and I can talk to people and I'm, I'm friendly. People like me. I remember one of my first nights closing at the video store. This was a, uh, would have been a Tuesday night probably. And at Tuesday night, we closed at nine. Now see, that shows you how long ago this was because even <laughs> With the most recent video stores, I feel like they were usually open until like midnight, right? Right. So this was this was way back in the day. We were only open, I think, until 11 o'clock on the weekends. We closed at 9 o'clock during the week. I was out just putting some movies away back on the shelves. I was working with a girl named Megan, and she had just collected the last bunch of movies from the Dropbox that she would take to check in at the end of the night. And at about 8.59... In 47 seconds, we saw headlights out in the parking lot. And without hesitation, she dropped the stack of movies, ran towards the front of the store. She jumped over the counter. Okay, she didn't really jump over the counter. It was more like a Dukes of Hazard hood slide, but you know what I mean. And she ran over and she locked the door just before this guy walked up and, and pulled on it. And when he pulled and the door was locked... He, he looked at her like, hey, you know, what's going on? Are you guys open? Everybody does that, right? And she just kind of shrugged her shoulders and pointed at her wrist, you know, to indicate like, sorry, time's up. You, you missed it. So he left disappointed. And then she turned around and looked at me and said, that was close. That guy almost <laughs> came in here. There is a gentleman named Ari Weinswick. I think is how you say his name. He's the author of Zingerman's Guide to Giving Great Service. And he makes a point that I really like, and this is anecdotal, but he says that in his experience, there's about 5% of people that he hires that are just superstar, amazing top performers. He hires them and they are great at customer service. And he says at the opposite end, there's about 5% that just are terrible. <laughs> no matter what you do, they, there's nothing you can do to help them and, and they'll never improve. He does say that in his mind, there's about that middle 90% that are trainable and that you can work with and, and teach them. And so if I had to diagnose the issue the experience that you went through, like I said, I always look first at training. Do they know what they're supposed to do? So I would guess that A, they probably don't have a very good training program in place because they should be able to train most people to that level. But I do think that there's probably some truth in what you're saying is that based on who that hiring pool is, there are some people that are down at the bottom that even with training, it can be very challenging to get them to be acceptable. Yeah, so uh, there was a study done a few years ago, I believe it was by Forrester Research, that said uh, they went out and talked to a bunch of CEOs and said, hey, do you think you effectively take care of your customers? 
something like 80% said, yes, we do. And then they went and talked to those customers and said, hey, do they take good care of you? And 8% agreed. Now, that's that was a few years ago, and I've heard that specific statistic cited a few times. I was just at a conference a couple of weeks ago, and uh, one of the other presenters there uh, had done some more recent research. I believe it was with Forrester again, and they did it a, a similar kind of up-to-date research. And the numbers have actually changed slightly. So she said they found about 88% of these company leaders said, yeah, we give really great service. And about 15% of customers agreed. So it's interesting. The number has grown on both sides. More people think they are giving these great experiences. A few more are still are delivering on them, but the gap is still about the same right? of, of how many are versus how many think they are. Right. To explain it this way, I'm, I'm going to use the restaurant analogy again. We've talked a lot about restaurants and again, this podcast isn't just for people doing restaurants, but I, I feel like it's easy to understand because everybody's been to the restaurant. Right. So it looks like this. You uh, take your wife out to the restaurant to, to eat. So everything from your first contact with that restaurant, let's say in this case, when you pull onto the parking lot, the whole time that you're at the restaurant and while you're there, that's all part of your experience. The service would be the actual interactions you have. So maybe with a server or with the manager at the restaurant. Now think about things like the quality of the food, the way that it's priced, the cleanliness of the restrooms. These are all things that still play into your experience, but they have nothing to do with service. Does that make sense? What I try to help people know is that I am very passionate about customer service, but I think the overall experience is equally as important. The thing is that you can still have, you can get away with dirty restrooms and and not high quality food if you have great service. Whereas it doesn't work as well the other way. It doesn't matter how clean your restrooms are or how good your food is if your service sucks. Right. It's it's such an important component. Now, eventually you will leave that restaurant and that's the end of that experience. So you have a customer service interaction within the larger experience. And even that experience can happen over and over again. Now, there's a larger thing here, which is the relationship. And the relationship is from your very first contact or interaction with the company. Maybe maybe you saw a billboard, maybe you heard about it on the radio, maybe you saw a commercial on TV. That's the start of the relationship. And the relationship can go on forever. It includes all of the experiences, all of the customer service interactions that you have. And so that would be the one idea to distill with people is it's it's just like dating. When you're trying to find the right person and you go on dates and you want to establish this relationship that's going to last long term, And that's where the most value is, is understanding that it's not just about now. It's not about getting a bigger tip. It's about building a relationship that will last forever, hopefully, with your customers. All right. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. This was part three of our 50 episode anniversary where we talk, where we're recapping the episodes and just pulling out the most important thing or what I thought was the most important information that was shared by my guest. I hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the monetize your mindset podcast podcast to identify your ideal side hustle. 
Go to YourIdealSideHustle.com. Here, take a deep dive into what you like to do, what you need to do, what you're already doing, and then ask, how can I monetize it? Come on back next week for more on how to create financial security so you can deal with whatever happens when whatever happens happens because it will happen. 